Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning with the 19th verse and reading through the 31st verse. Now there was a rich man, and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word at this time. We've been talking about important things to the faith recently. We've talked about the importance of scripture. We've talked about the importance of the cross. And we've talked about the importance of Jesus. And today I want us to look at something that... uh, uh, many people don't even want to talk about. They do not want hell to be in any religious conversation. And yet it is so important. And we can see how important it is from this passage that we read this day. Now, you see, you must always take scripture in context. And whenever you take this passage that talks about the rich man and Lazarus, It is in the context of Jesus addressing the scribes and the Pharisees who were scoffing at him and were grumbling earlier about him uh, dining with tax gatherers and sinners. In fact, this is a continuation uh, just following the story of the prodigal sons. Uh, The prodigal son story is followed by the story of the unrighteous steward a man who is entrusted uh, with his master's property and who mismanaged it 
And then it was time for him to give an accounting. He knew he was going to have to give an accounting. And so he uh, went around uh, to all of those that owed something to his master. And he worked out a deal with them so that he would be right with them whenever his master turned him out. And Jesus uh, is talking, remember, to the scribes and Pharisees. And he's telling them, basically, at this point in time, your heavenly father has entrusted great responsibility to you. The kingdom has been entrusted to you and you have mismanaged it and uh, you're not treating those that uh, uh, you should be treating rightly. You're not treating them rightly. And he goes on and then he says, uh, uh, he, he, he accuses them saying, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. If you'll remember in other places, Jesus has warned us to be aware and to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees because they love to have the best places, the places of honor. They love the accolades of men. Uh, they love all the things that come from having a place of position. And he said, that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. And he accuses them of having set aside basically the things of God and using a godly position for their own satisfaction and their own pleasure. And so then he goes on and he gives an even greater uh, accusation because he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, if a lot of people would read this, they'd just say, what was that? Where did that come from? But remember, this is the, con the context of the leaders of Israel. Those who are holding themselves out to be the leaders in the kingdom of God. And he is accusing them of spiritual adultery. He's accusing them of having turned their backs on the God who loves them and the desires of his heart and instead just satisfying themselves in their position. And he is, if you'll recall, they have excluded tax gatherers and sinners. They won't have anything to do with them, and they grumble when Jesus does. And just above that, it says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, what that passage that's uh, translated forcing his way into it, what that means is all of a sudden, now that people are hearing the good news that they can be a part of the kingdom of God, people are scrambling to get into the kingdom. People that the uh, Sadducees, or the, I'm sorry, that the Pharisees and the scribes were excluding or finding with great joy that they can come into the kingdom. Jesus is inviting them and they're coming in droves.
And Jesus uses this as an indictment against these Pharisees and these scribes who have been excluding the very people that God wanted them reaching out to and bringing into the kingdom. So it is in this context, you see, as he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees who think that they are in a great position, a great godly position, uh, it's them that he's addressing and he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And as you can see in this story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man or the Pharisees and the scribes because he enjoyed good things in this life and then he wound up in Hades. And he is warning them. He's trying to give them a warning that they need to change their ways, that they need to repent. And you'll see in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that the rich man never was repentant. He was sorry to be where he was, but he wasn't about to repent. And he doesn't blame himself. He blames others for not having warned him of this place. And then he asks that somebody, that Lazarus be sent back from the dead to talk to them, to his brothers. And he's told that uh, there's no way that that can happen. And he says, and Jesus is, is, is saying that Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Basically, he's saying they have the Bible. And if they won't listen to the Bible, they couldn't be convinced even if one rose from the dead. Well, this is the context. And he is warning religious leaders that they are in danger of hell fire if they don't wake up. Well, Jesus thought that it was very important to talk about hell. And I love what uh, Tim Keller has to say on this subject. And I'd like to share four points that he shares uh, at this time and uh, just about the importance of hell. First of all, it's important because Jesus taught about it more than all other biblical authors put together. Jesus speaks of eternal fire and punishment as the final abode of the angels and human beings who have rejected God. He says that those who give in to sin will be in danger of uh, the fire of hell. And the word that Jesus uses for hell is Gehenna, a valley in which piles of garbage were daily burned, as well as the corpses of those without families uh, who could bury them. In Mark 9.43, Jesus speaks of a person going to hell, Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is referring to the maggots that live in the corpses on the garbage heap. When all flesh is consumed, the maggots die. Jesus is saying, however, that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends and that this is why their worm does not die. 
In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is speaking to disciples, some of whom will eventually be tortured, sawn in half, flayed, and burned alive. And yet he says, that is a picnic compared to hell. Clearly, for Jesus, hell was a real place since he said that after Judgment Day, people would experience it in their bodies. Hell is a place not only of physical, but also of spiritual misery. Jesus constantly depicted hell as painful fire and outer darkness, a place of unimaginably terrible misery and unhappiness. If Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. But why was it so important to Jesus? It's important because it shows how infinitely dependent we are on God for everything, first of all. Virtually all commentators and theologians believe that the biblical images of fire and outer darkness are metaphorical. Since souls are in hell right now without bodies, how could the fire be literal physical fire? Even Jonathan Edwards pointed out that the biblical language for hell was symbolic, but he added, when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. To say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever because you see the reality will be far worse than the image. What then are fire and darkness symbols for? Well, they are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. In the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is, depart from me. That is remarkable. To simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why? We were originally created to walk in God's immediate presence. In one sense, of course, God is everything and upholds everything. Only in Him do we all speak and move and have our being. In that sense, then, it is impossible to depart from the Lord. Even hell cannot exist unless God upholds it. But the Bible says sin excludes us from God's face. All the life, joy, love, strength, and meaning we have looked for and longed for is found in his face. That is, in his favor, presence, fellowship, and pleasure.
Sin removes us from that aspect of his power that sustains and supports us. It is to us as water is to a fish. Away from it, our life slowly ebbs away. That is what has been happening to us throughout history. That is why, for Paul, the everlasting fire and destruction of hell is exclusion from the presence of the Lord. Separation from God and his blessings forever is the reality to which all the symbols point. For example, when Jesus speaks of being destroyed in hell, the word used is apolumai, which does not mean to be annihilated out of existence, but more to be totaled, to be totally wrecked and ruined so as to be useless for its intended purpose. The image of Gehenna and maggots means decomposition. Once a body is dead, it loses its beauty and strength and coherence. It begins to break into its constituent parts, to stink and to disintegrate. So what is a totaled human soul? It does not cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul is for. Reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving or receiving love or joy. Why? Because the human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God and all truly human life flows from that. In this world, all of humanity, even those who have turned away from God, are still supported by kindly providences or common grace, keeping us still capable of wisdom, love, joy, and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. Another reason hell is important to Jesus is because it unveils the seriousness and danger of living life for yourself. In Romans, the first and second chapters, Paul explains that God in his wrath against those who reject him gives them up to the sinful passions of their hearts. Commentators point out that this cannot mean God impels people to sin, since in Ephesians 4.19 it is said that sinners give themselves up to their sinful desires. It means that the worst and fairest punishment God can give a person is to allow them their sinful hearts deepest desire. What is that? The desire of the human heart is for independence. We want to choose and go our own way. This is no idle wandering from the path. As Jeremiah puts it, no one repents. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. We want to get away from God, but as we have seen, this is the very thing that is most destructive to us. 
Cain is warned not to sin because sin is slavery. It destroys your ability to choose, love, enjoy. Sin also brings blindness. The more you reject the truth about God, the more incapable you are of perceiving any truth about yourself or the world. What is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, to go our own way, be our own, the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him, or without God forever worshiping themselves. If the thing you most want is to worship God in the beauty of His holiness, then that is what you will get. If the thing you want most is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony, and the presence of God a terror you will flee forever. The idea of hell is implausible to people because they see it as unfair that infinite punishment would be meted out for completely minor, finite, false steps, like not embracing Christianity. Also, almost no one knows anyone, including themselves, that seems to be bad enough to merit hell. But the biblical teaching on hell answers both of these objections. First, it tells us that people only get in the afterlife what they have most wanted, either to have God as Savior and Master or to be their own saviors and masters. Secondly, it tells us that hell is a natural consequence. Even in this world, it is clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable and blind. The more self-centered, self-absorbed, self-pitying, and self-justifying people are, the more breakdowns occur, relationally, psychologically, and even physically. They also go deeper into denial about the source of their problems. On the other hand, a soul that has decided to center its life on God and His glory moves toward increasing joy and wholeness. We can see both of these trajectories even in this life. But if, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, then just imagine where these two kinds of souls will be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God, in His infinite justice, sends us where we wanted to go. We run from the presence of God, and therefore God actively gives us up to our desire. Hell is therefore a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us 
and therefore are locked from the outside by God. Every indication is that those doors continue to stay forever barred from the inside. Though every knee and tongue in hell knows that Jesus is Lord, no one can seek or want that Lordship without the Holy Spirit. This is why we can say that no one goes to hell who does not choose both to go and stay there. What could be more fair than that? It's also important to understand about hell because it is the only way to know how much Jesus loved us and how much he did for us. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says that no physical destruction can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell, of losing the presence of God. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man in hell is desperately thirsty. And on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. The water of life, the presence of God, was taken from him. The point is this, unless we come to grips with what hell is, we will never even begin to understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, He was experiencing hell itself. But consider, if our debt for sin is so great that it is never paid off there, but our hell stretches on for eternity, then what are we to conclude from the fact that Jesus said that the payment was finished after only three hours? We learned that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. And this makes emotional sense when we consider the relationship he lost. If a mild acquaintance denounces you and rejects you, it it hurts. If a good friend does the same, that hurts far worse. However, if your spouse walks out on you saying, I never want to see you again, that is far more devastating still. The longer, deeper, and more intimate the relationship, the more tortuous is any separation. But the son's relationship with the father was beginningless and infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate human relationship. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit and most powerful furnace beyond all imagining. He experienced the full wrath of the Father, and he did it voluntarily for us. Fairly often I meet people who say, I have a personal relationship with God. I have a personal relationship with a loving God, and yet I don't believe in Jesus Christ at all. If I ask why, the response is 
My God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. But this shows a deep misunderstanding of both God and the cross. On the cross, God himself, incarnated as Jesus, took the punishment. He didn't visit on a third party, however willing. So the question becomes, what did it cost your kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did he endure in order to receive us? Where did this God agonize, cry out, and where were his nails and thorns? The only answer is, I don't think that was necessary. But then ironically, in our effort to make God more loving, we have made him less loving. His love, in the end, needed to take no action. It was sentimentality, not love at all. The worship of a God like this will be, at most, impersonal, cognitive, and ethical. There will be no joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. We could not sing to him, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my love, my awe. Only through the cross could our separation from God be removed, and we will spend all eternity loving and praising God for what he has done. And if Jesus did not experience hell itself for us, then we ourselves are devalued. In Isaiah, we are told, the results of his suffering he shall see and shall be satisfied. This is a stupendous thought. Jesus suffered infinitely more than any human soul in eternal hell, yet he looks at us and says, it was worth it. What could make us feel more loved and valued than that? The Savior presented in the gospel waited through hell itself rather than lose us, and no other Savior ever depicted has loved us at such a cost. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.